Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to our conversation about the state of the arts. This is the first one in our new series of Culture Club Talks, conversations about a whole range of issues in the arts happening between now and the end of the year. Thank you very much for coming, for braving the weather, which, uh, you know, perfectly fine all day, raining just when you want to go out, not very convenient. So we appreciate you making it, uh, making it out to here. The conversations that are going to take place over the next couple of months cover a whole range of issues. We have a conversation with John Cleese coming up, which next week, in the next two weeks. A conversation with Jermaine Greer on Shakespeare the Radical. I'm afraid that one is pretty much sold out. But a series of wonderful conversations, Nijinsky and Stravinsky with Nicolette Freon and David McAllister. A conversation about um, uh, digital, the way digital is being incorporated into the performing arts with T.L. Uglo, uh, Lee Lewis and Gideon Obazanek. And then uh, a conversation towards the end of the year with a whole range of our new and established festival directors, including um, Rachel Healy from Adelaide Festival, uh, Wesley Enoch, and a couple of, I think, in very interesting blow-ins who we'll be announcing in the next couple of weeks. I just want to let you know also about something very unusual and very special that's happening on Saturday, because you are very serious people who probably only go to the most scrupulously art house of art house movies. So I just want to say to you, if you have young people or popular culture fans in your lives, come and see the amazing Jackie Chan on Saturday in conversation with Lee Shwing Sin, who you would know as the author of Mao Last Mao's Last Dancer, an extraordinary ballet dancer and now director of the Queensland Ballet. So two absolute masters of the physical arts who will be here in conversation on the stage of the concert hall. Tonight, a conversation about the state of the arts. You will all know that this has been something that people have been preoccupied with for the last few months. We have a great panel here. Our host tonight is Monique Shaft. She will be introducing them. Monique is a Walkley Award-winning journalist, a reporter on 7.30 on ABC television. She's also a documentary filmmaker, and you might also have recognised her as one of the co-hosts of ABC's radical um, news program, Hungry Beast. So please join me in welcoming Monique and our panel, uh, Michael Lynch, Lily Shearer, Nick Adkins and Tamara Winnikoff. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, while they're coming... Can I just add to that, sorry, while they're coming onto the stage? We, as you can see, we're being filmed here tonight. If you don't want to be filmed, um, please contact our front of house staff. But when it comes time for questions, we very much need people to come to the microphone um, and ask their question with amplification so they can be heard. Thanks. Thank you, Anne. Um, welcome to the Sydney Opera House for this very special Culture Club event on the state of the arts. Um, we meet, meet today on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past and present. Whether you're an artist, an arts worker or an arts lover, you're affected by the recent cuts to arts funding. In 2014, the Abbott government cut 100 million from the arts over four years, including 28 million from the Australia Council. In 2015, the then Federal Arts Minister, George Brandis, ripped a further 105 million from the Australia Council over four years to place in a program we now know as Catalyst under ministerial control. Now, in the shadow of the 2016 federal election, we ask, are the arts in crisis? What does the future hold for artists and arts organisations? What does it mean for Australia's position in the broader international arts community? But most importantly, what can we do from here? 
This evening, we're fortunate enough to be joined by a bunch of arts gurus who are going to tackle all these questions. To my left, we have producer and artist, Nick Atkins. We have performance artist and a leader in First Peoples Cultural Development, Lily Shearer. Tamara Winnikoff from the National Association of the Visual Arts. And over there, we have veteran arts administrator, Michael Lynch. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we get into it, I'm actually going to ask our guests to share a little bit more detail about the work they do and the work that they have done, just to provide you with a little more context uh, before we get into the conversation. So, Nick, tell, tell us about yourself. Yeah, um, so I'm here with a couple of different hats on, I think, huh, I hope. Um, one of my roles is that I'm a board member of the PACT Centre for Emerging Artists. For people that don't know, PACT is an arts organisation um, in, currently based in Erskineville that supports artists in the first five years of their creative practice. Uh, I was an artist that benefited from the programs there and I currently sit on the board, I suppose, as a younger artist representative to help keep it connected to that community and ensure that the programming is still doing what it sets out to do. It was one of the organisations which lost its funding. Um, I also work as the producer of Q programs at the Joan, which is a multi-art form centre in Penrith. I manage the theatre making program, um, so it's the kind of legacy of the Q theatre company, which started here in Circular Quay, hence the Q. Um, and I'm also a, a freelance theatre director and writer in and around those hats. Yeah. Good, thanks, Dick. Lily. Thanks for your acknowledgement to Country 2, Mon, and it's great to be on the land of the Gadigal people, and as a Murawari Re Republic person, I pay my respects to Elders past, present, and most, most importantly in my line of work, future. So I have a background in community arts and cultural development, hence the Ros Bauer Award recipient this year. Um, first female Aboriginal woman to, or first people's woman to win it. Um, I work a lot. Thank you. That's the worst thing blackfellas are not, we're not good at, is singing our own praises and we should. So I'm trying to lead by example for my younger people. Uh, I, I um, have a background in theatre, dance, multidiscipline. Um, I've worked across uh, mainstream organisations such as Performance Space, Urban Theatre Projects, um, our Powerhouse Youth Theatre, Shopfront Youth Theatre. I produced the first piece of female, uh, female youth uh, theatre back in 1996, I think it was, with Shopfront. Um, I'm a co-founder and Mughlin uh, Artistic Directorate for Mughlin Performing Arts, who is the baby uh, Aboriginal company of Australia out of the three companies, Ilbidjiri being our oldest uh, in Victoria, Yiriyakan in Western Australia and then Mughlin Performing Arts and we're um, based at Carriage Works and we have a show opening tomorrow night called Winnebogi Yoringa. <coughs> Please come along and see it. Incredible. Thanks, Lily. Tamara? Uh, I'm the Executive Director of the National Association for the Visual Arts, which is the peak body peak national body in Australia for the visual and media arts, craft and design sector. Um, it's a 33-year-old organisation that was established by a group of artists who felt that artists needed a voice in Australia. And really the core of our mission has always been to provide that voice and to help artists themselves to speak on their own account and to mobilise the sector. 
Um, I suppose the three main things we do are advocacy and lobbying, and you've probably seen quite a lot of that recently, and we'll talk about that a bit more, I'm sure. Um, but the other things we do are we set the um, standard, best practice standards for our industry, and we also provide a whole <coughs> swathe of services to artists and other visual arts professionals. Um, the other thing that I do is that I'm the co-convener of something called ArtsPeak. And ArtsPeak is the confederation of all the peak, body, peak national bodies like ours. So there are at the moment 33 of them. And one of the interesting things that's starting to happen as the result of all the crisis of the last year and the dramas of the disrespect that's been paid to the arts is that the arts sector has really mobilised and... Um, Arts Peak is now going to reconfigure itself so as to really become um, truly the, the national voice for Australian arts. So that work is, um, is just about to start. Great, thank you. And Michael? Um, and I'm a veteran, I mm. guess that means <laughs> past it. Um, but for my sins, um, I am at present, having come back to Australia about eight months ago, after 14 years out of Sydney, um, I'm now chair of the Sydney Community Foundation, um, which does lots of good things, mostly in Western Sydney. Um, I'm also the chair of Circa, who does wonderful things in the air with the human body around the world. And as of last week, for my sins, I took over as interim director of the National Arts School, um, just to make sure that retirement doesn't become too dull. <laughs> <laughs> Michael... If I can stick with you for this first question, big question, are the arts in crisis? I think the last year has been you know, pretty bloody and I'm particularly concerned, I think for you know, some sectors, I think the big companies are in pretty good shape. I think they've been able to you know, be safeguarded and insulated to some extent from um, a lot of the issues that you know, the smaller companies and you know, small arts groups have had to deal with. I think they've been able to secure a much broader philanthropic and corporate sponsorship base for themselves, which correspondingly I think is making it much harder for the smaller companies and for the less developed sector. Um, I think it's particularly concerning where young people are in the equation. I think it must... I've got three kids who all work in the arts and all under 35, and I look around at what they're trying to do as against what my generation has been able to do and was able to do at similar points in time. And um, I think we're creating a potential divide that may have serious long-term consequences for the arts. I think the last year was as bad a year as, you know, put, put aside the, the quantum of money, I just think the way that it played out was a, very much against the interests of the arts across the country and, we, and we're at that sort of interesting point. To say we're in crisis, you know, we are at a point where I think the new government is in a position to address some of the issues that were never dealt with in terms of putting up a policy before the election. I think the challenge that um, we should be throwing out to the new government is what are they going to do to ensure that all parts of the jigsaw um, fit together in a much better way. Thank you. Um, Nick, you mentioned you're <coughs> on the board of PACT, uh, the Centre for Emerging Artists, which is no longer funded by the Australia Council for the first time in nearly 30 years. Mm. What does this mean for the work that you do? Mm. Um, 
so it's, it's sometimes hard to explain because people think when you just get less money that you make less work, that you can kind of just reduce everything. But PACT already kind of operates on such a, a shoestring budget that it, we can't just reduce our output. We have to com completely, if we are to kind of continue and survive on, on the current funding level, quite radically reimagine how we operate. Um, that funding kind of affords us the support of an artistic director who can mentor and connect with younger artists and I suppose identify patterns and trends and try and develop programs to support them. So without that, um, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to see what we can do. Um, so I suppose that's what we're in the process of, mm. of now going, okay, cool, this is, this is where we're at. Um, who, can we, who can we connect to? Who can we partner with? Um, who are the great artists that have, you know, survived and thrived through the programs and, and how can they maybe better come back to help us go forward? Yeah. Mm. If I can stick with you, Nick, mm. you work with a lot of younger and emerging artists. Yes, yeah, I do. How hard is it to be an artist these days? <laughs> that, it's tough. No. Um, <laughs> are we done? Uh, so there's a, there's a couple different things here because I'd like to say it's, it's tough to be a young artist. I'd like to also say it's extra tough to be a young artist in Western Sydney. And I think that's worth pointing out um, because there's young artists in the city who are competing for very little resources, paying very high rent, but they tend to know they tend to know the places they need to apply to or connect with. Whereas in my experience working out in Western Sydney, the reason why, um, as part of my job, which is to produce great theatre for audiences, um, I think it's also important that half of my job is to uh, connect with younger artists in Western Sydney because the culture um, of participation and applying just isn't there yet. They don't think they're allowed to apply or they don't think those spaces are for them. So it's tough and tough. Um, I think the other thing I, I kind of want to bring into the equation is uh, I think Sydney at the moment in general is a very strange place. Um, I think the lockout laws, I think the Keep Sydney Open campaign, I think there are a bunch of different tensions that are all creating a place where it's, it's, tough, to, it's tough to gather in numbers and it's, it's tough to start something. So I think that's kind of contributing to it as well. And places like Pact um, have traditionally been sanctuaries or islands. Um, they're very cheap. They've got people that will make sure that you don't hurt yourself when you're there and they've got insurance. Um, so you can go and you can connect and, and you can start something. So that's why I'm, I suppose I'm concerned about seeing them endangered. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, Lily, how have the recent shifts in the industry impacted on the work that you're doing? Well, we're the, one of the lucky um, organisations newly funded organisations, we're newly funded and we want to celebrate and we want to shout it high and shout it proud because we've been working project to project since 2007 and um, we deserve this. Mm. But at whose cost? At our brothers and sisters in Melbourne and the Black Arm Band who didn't get up? An internationally renowned company that has put First People's issues first and foremost to the world, because the world is more interested in First Peoples of this country than, first, than other Australians. Let's put it out there and be straightforward with that. Um, <coughs> so, yeah, we're very lucky with the, um, with the funding and um, we got Australia Council as well as Catalyst for our major um, national festival, the Yellow Monday National First Peoples R Playwriting Festival which happens biannually. 
And, but it's also inspired us to work harder before we even got the money, because we started making uh, connections and relationships to our brothers and sisters in Aotearoa and Turtle Island, so New Zealand and Canada for the um, colonised names. And, you know, us from this great South land need to connect with, those, with our people across the oceans because they have models and ways of doing things, and so do we. And once we share those knowledges, then um, we'll be much better off. And, uh, you know, we've been meeting, wow, since 2008, I think Wesley Enoch called us as a nation. We started to regather in, in our little uh, First People sector in this mainstream arts industry, which I term cultural arts because they're not separate for us. They're one and the same. They give us um, our belonging and our heritage and what our people have done for thousands and thousands of years. So um, we've only been regathering since 2008 and we've had four, we've only had four national indigenous theatre forums. And so out of that, we've started to create our own peak body, the Blackfella Performing Arts Alliance, which I'm happy to say um, Ava Mullaney has just started. She's been, I think she's been in the position three weeks to start getting our constitution and everything ready. So we're the leaders of our own um, destiny. We're self-determining and we always ripple back to our communities always constantly rippling back to our communities and making sure our communities are in this for the long ride and um, that cultural arts can sustain us both physically, socially, emotionally, intellectually and spiritually. Cool, thank you. Um, Tamara, I'm curious to hear from you about how this has rocked the, the visual arts community and also um, how is all of this affecting our audiences? Mm. Well, first of all, for the visual arts community, it's not only for the visual arts community, but the visual arts community has been particularly hard hit by the decisions that have been made recently because we've now lost um, almost half of the small to medium organisations that support artists um, both developing their work and bringing their work to the public. And that's pretty devastating. And one of the reasons that it's devastating is that not only does it demonstrate a lack of regard for the work of artists in Australia, but it also means that those very valuable structures that provide the bedrock for the development of people's talents and capabilities and and reaching out to audiences, that that's going to now, you know, all of those organisations are either going to disappear or they're going to have to spend so much time raising money that the, it diminishes the work that they're actually, the, this, the sort of platform that they're providing for the reason that they're there. And that certainly applies to us because we also lost our funding and we've been having those conversations, you know, how the hell do we deliver all those things that we know are so necessary and I think what came out of, or one of the things that came out of what's happened is the understanding, much better understanding, um, both within the industry itself and outside the arts industry, 
of the coherence of all elements of, the, of all the parts and how interdependent they are. So, you know, the small to medium sector actually um, delivers m much more audience, much more, you know, much more payment to artists, much greater outreach internationally, blah, 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 than the majors. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, I know that Michael comes from <laughs> comes from I having came from there, but I run... also came from Maroubra. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so I think that what's been particularly devastating is that loss of infrastructure, infrastructural support. But equally, um, it's that sense that the government does not respect what we do. You know, can treat us with such cavalier disregard as to throw a rock in the middle of the pond and be amused by the tidal wave that it's caused. And that really it betrays... Um, uh, I mean, it's a shocking situation when our government, I think, is so at odds with the sentiment of the people. Because we know from the surveys that are done that actually um, over 90% of people in the community value the arts very highly and particularly value um, the education, educational opportunity that it provides for children and the opportunity for expression that actually is denied us in other parts of our lives. And that's such a critical part of being a human, you know, that you almost think, well, what are we being turned into? Are, are we, you know, does, do governments want us to simply be consuming cyborgs rather than having a will and a, and a capacity to be create all those things, creative, innovative, agile, you know, um, expressive, and all of those things that we know that the arts is preeminent at. Your second question about what does it mean to audiences, I guess that's what, I, in a way, that's what I've been talking about, because the community is the audience, and we're also the audiences for one another, you know, because artists are also engaged with learning from and participating in and enjoying other people's work. It's, it's mutually nourishing. And so, you know, in a way, what it's denying or, or, or undervaluing and therefore contracting the capability of access for people to cultural experience and to the opportunity to be engaged in cultural making themselves. So, for example, in the visual arts, um, we know that over two million people are actually actively engaged as um, interested participants, not professional artists, but people who enjoy the making and expressing process. So, you know, it's not an insubstantial proportion of the community who are engaged with this process. But the, the really challenging question for us is why, why do governments feel that they can do this? How can they get away with it? And, you know, there was such a huge backlash from the arts community, which went on and on and on over the last year. You know, constant newspaper articles, constant... I mean, we, we actually got the three um, arts representative politicians to participate in a debate, a public debate, about um, their arts policies just before the election. And the coalition came to that event having no arts policy and having no, uh, seemingly not being embarrassed about that. You know, I mean, how can the arts minister come to a debate and come to an election with nothing to say? Nothing to say. Mm. Do, do you have personal thoughts on why they think they can get away with that? 
I bet she does. <laughs> <laughs> Did, does anyone that have thoughts well, they they'd be willing I to think, share? Yes, I, I think that they are misjudging the situation, which has been clearly evident in the results of the election. I think they, they don't understand the people. And I think they have total lack of disrespect for their, their constituents because uh, we don't have much choice of who to vote for. You know, don't vote, the government will get in. We're the, the lesser of two evils. You know, we didn't hear much lobbying from the beautiful Arts Party. Well, oh, I think that's a bit unfair. <laughs> yeah. um, I think this probably in this... I think the, the issue really was, can to pick up Tamara's point, can you go to an election without a policy and then say, you know, on, on the back of what they've done? And I think that was really a major failing. And I think the challenge now for the government, you know, they're back, they've got a one-seat majority, is that clearly they need to address that. They need to look at what they're going to do to, you know, to, to, to fix the landscape as best they can. They probably, you know, they may have taken, you know, some... Um, awareness from you know, how close it was and they didn't necessarily think that was going to be the case and it probably wasn't the arts that did that to them. But it is an opportunity for a bit of healing, I would have thought. Mm -hmm. And you know, on a number of fronts, whether it be public broadcasting, whether it be the arts, but I think also on a whole range of other... Clearly, you know, they were much more scared or you know, the repercussions of you know, talking about health and education. Um, I think have started to come together and, you know, I really don't know what, why they weren't looking at the zeitgeist that is sweeping the world and thinking, you know, we need to be seen to be supporting activities that build communities, build society, um, stop fragmentation, you know, stop the idea of demonising religious groups or, you know, all sorts of other people as the, you know, the bad people and, you know, start to see the arts for the role that they play, religion for the, the, the role that it plays and community for the role that that plays as, you know, the, the things that, you know, governments should be supporting. So I think there's a big challenge out there for, for government, you know, at the moment to, you know, try and instigate some activity that, you know, builds back some confidence. It's going to be a ropey ride enough... Um, because of the numbers, but I think it is an opportunity for people to um, you know, now be seen to a bit of to do some healing. Well, I also think that the arts should be um, multi-partisan. You know, it shouldn't be that the that the coalition is the arts thumper and the uh, and the uh, Labor Party is the arts supporter. And, and in fact, throughout the history of Australia, it hasn't been the case that that it's only yeah. the Labor Party that supports the arts. I mean, each of each of the parties supports it in a particular way. But mm. this is the first time that there's been such devastation caused by one party. And I, I one of the things that I think is a missed opportunity. But let's hope that. You you know the, that they'll see the error of their ways, is that there's a there's increasing conviction about where the jobs of the future are going to be, and they're not necessarily going to be in the traditional fields, which are, are predicted to be taken over by 
robots or, you know, by, mechani um, by mechanisms that don't require the sort of invention that is the, the hallmark of the human mind. And so, you know, because um, people who work in the arts are people who have this capacity capacity to think outside of the predictable, mm. um, that, that, that investment in people who have this capacity surely is going to be, even in the most pragmatic economic terms, a wise way forward. Well, I think that was the, the really disturbing part of last year. You launched an innovation um, debate. You said innovation was going to secure the future of the country. And with... No. And, and what, what was they missing? Did, we said... <laughs> No, but there's no reference to creativity. There's no connection to culture. It clearly is predicated surely on the idea of creating young, super financially successful inventors, app writers, the like. Now, it just didn't seem to me to be a policy that made sense for what the future, the challenges the future is going to throw at us. And I think it was a real mistake to launch that policy um, no, if you're someone in Western Sydney who's never had exposure to the arts and you start being lectured about the great future of innovation, um, no, I think it's really, it's a big challenge to think, oh, that's going to save my life. <laughs> um, I don't think it will. What needs to happen here in terms of arts policy? Um, well, I think the Australia Council clearly needs to... Um, be a little bolder and um, a little more resolute in terms of... You know, they're not there as an advocate. They're there to you know, dispense government money. But clearly the fact that you know, they were um, very quiet through you know, this rather you know, testy debate, um, I think a lot of the major companies, and I've said this before, were you know, much too compliant. I think there is a responsibilities on the big companies and the old people and the rich people to actually say, we actually see the importance of what goes on in Western Sydney in, in the queue or you know, in small companies. We see the importance of addressing you know, what's going on in the various Indigenous communities across Australia. Mm -hmm. Stephen Page made the point the other night you know, Bangara is still the only major organisation in Australia and, you know, that's been a real slog over a long period of time. Actually, if I could just pick up on a point too, I, I think that the... Um, uh, because of the lack of capacity that's been demonstrated by government and by the Australia Council to fill that um, policy void, what, the, what is actually happening is that the sector itself, all of us, are, are, are beginning to say, if they won't do it for us, we'll do it. And in fact, there are... Well, they probably should have started doing that about 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, well, I suppose we're talking in generalities in a way, Michael, because, of course, there have been <laughs> organisations like ours yeah, who have been no, no, no. constantly feeding into government ideas about policy and legislation and, and doing submissions and making change to legislation and so on. So incrementally it's been happening. But I think that what's happening now is the idea that there's a failure of vision um, at, at, the lev at that level and that that vision has to come from the creative people themselves, ourselves. And so there is a groundswell now building of people who want to be engaged in that process and there is a mechanism that's being developed for that to happen. 
um, which has been uh, initiated by a group of us who've been working to try to coordinate all of this um, wild surge of, um, of engagement and to turn it towards some sort of productive um, outcome. But it's the actual power. I think, like, following all, all the cuts, it was the fact that I felt, we felt vulnerable. Um, I kind of naively looked towards OSCO, the Australia Council, as an advocate, even though I know I shouldn't have. Um, they kind of set an agenda and they taught me about how I could be structuring my practice and where I could be travelling. So to watch them be cut so savagely and be brought in line, I was like, we, we have no defence mechanisms. And I suppose what bugs me is that I feel like we've always been ready to offer up visions. I'm always ready to tell people how to do things. But I don't, <laughs> I I don't actually have the power to enforce it. And that's what bugs me, this hard power and soft power thing, that he could. Why did they do it? Because they could and they did it. Um, and I reckon they've gotten away with it to some extent. We're here, we're on this side of the election. Sure, the majority is slim, but really is, are we going to be able to lobby ourselves? And I, I actually really appreciate the work that was done through the Free the Arts campaign, through a lot of the feral arts. Um, I was, maybe, I sh should I disclose this, one of the people with the skulls on our heads in front of STC while they were being quiet, trying to say, come on, guys, come to the party. Um, <laughs> But so far, I, I haven't felt or I haven't seen any movement where I, I have hope that we can actually start to, start to influence that swing seat or influence that MP. Um, and that, that makes me sad. But that's something to work towards, maybe, because I, I reckon we've got the vision to some extent. And I think, I think what, uh, despite the government's best intentions, one of the outcomes has been that people in the arts have become much smarter about how to be yeah. political. Yeah. And, you know, certainly organisations like ours have been providing the resources for that, but it's actually all of the people like Not you who are here... Not before time, Tamara. <laughs> true, but, you know, it, I suppose we're a young culture in a way. You know, we, the settlers, are, the, are a young culture, and we're needing to um, learn our power. So I think we are. Which is why I was having a go at the government because I think they lacked lacked leadership, and I'm trying to get better, not bitter, because <laughs> we got a double whammy with the the First Peoples Nations cuts mm. the year before that, and then the arts mm. on on top of that. It was like splitting us in all these pieces. I felt a bit like Pemulwuy, a bit cut up and spread all over the place, um, and and I know. Our community is feeling like that and hence the high suicide and incarceration and, you know, the list goes on. All we're asking is for let us develop the solutions to our own community problems through cultural arts because that's the foundation that informs social, health, economics, education. You know, once we have that foundation, then it's in place. But how can you have that foundation when they're cutting preschools, cutting, um, cutting funds to the sexual health, for goodness sake, when we have the highest epidemic of HIV still in our communities? So, you know, good on you, Jacob, for making blood on the dance floor. Awesome piece of theatre. Mm. Lily, if I can get your thoughts on this recent round of funding. Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations had some wins um, with 17 organisations being funded by the Australia Council. Um, so are there some good stories to tell too in amongst all this? Oh, yeah, there's some great stories to tell in, in amongst this. Um, but how, 
how much freedom and how far can we go in, in four years. Um, we take... Uh, we get funding, we take a few steps forward and then we get knocked back again because it gets pulled out. I used to run a pro pilot program called the Koori Youth Program in Western Sydney back in the 90s. Six programs throughout the state, four successful ones. Oh, we better cut that. That's when we used to have a ministerial youth ministry, you know. So, you know, we don't even care about our young people anymore because we don't even have a ministry for youth. So, you know, they come across everything. So, and, and just coming from the Youth Arts Summit last weekend um, at Milson's Island, you know, the amount of crisis those guys are in, even our Aboriginal organisations, there was one Aboriginal organisation who manages 52 funding agreements. Mm -hmm. Do we have to join sports? Do we have to have alcohol as our sponsor? You know, I mean, we do have a little bit of alcohol, but not on TV with our sponsorship. You know, um, how, how do we as <clears throat> First Peoples build that economic base? Everyone else in Australia's got an ep economic base. Sorry, you know. To just put it out there, the Italians have got an economic base, the Maltese have got an economic base, the Greeks. You know, everyone that's come to this country has an economic base. But every time we get set up to try and set up an economic base, they take it out from underneath. We don't even have a voice. National Congress of Australia's First People are not being able to deliver the work ATSIC did. At least ATSIC gave us a voice. Mm. Do you think we can look to other industries like sport for inspiration or ideas in terms of how to fund what we do? Anyone have thoughts on that? Oh, I brought up before, I think we could look, um, I'm a gay, um, <laughs> and I think that we could actually look <laughs> to the LGBTQI community in how they advocate and lobby, um, because it's a much more developed knowledge. Um, and I mean, we have friends, French groups at different levels of parliament. We know who our allies are. We know who our enemies are, um, and it's, it's a part of galvanising the community and, and unifying them around a message. But it's also about playing the numbers game and knowing where the votes lie and who we need to win across. Um, I'm over asking or waiting for leadership to come from within mm. the parliament. I want to create an environment where they can't afford not to follow us. Um, so I, I think communities are helpful for me, but maybe there are other sectors or I, I agree. I, th I think that's a much stronger analogy. I'm not sure that the sport <laughs> thing does it. No, in, in that way, no. I love sport, I love the arts. No, from that point of view, I'm you know, happy that there's both there. But you know, television, you know, big determinant of what determines sport. You know, everyone loves netball until they take it off the television. Mm. You know, th those sorts of things are real issues. Um, I think we probably do need to get a little bit smarter in both in how we lobby, how we address the issues, and I think the LGT um, analogy is quite helpful. But I also think we probably have got lots of smart people sitting in this room who probably, you know, have much greater knowledge of, you know, how you use the technology, how you use crowdfunding, how you start to use some of the mechanisms that, you know, can help build a more robust art sector who can start to build the accessibility, you know, look at doing it rather than always doing it the way we've done it. I feel a bit of a, you know, as an old man looking back on the theatre business, um, I feel that we never really, you know, there were 
I remember one of the first things I ever saw was Grotowski at the Cell Block Theatre in 1971, and my mind was blown by what he was doing. Um, But I I rarely think over the 40 or so years since then have I felt that same challenge to my system and to the way we do things. And I do think it falls to the creative community to get out of the safe space which I think all of us are in and which I think Australia's been in for, you know, the last 15 years and start to, you know, take advantage of the natural advantages that we have, the easy ride we've had compared to the rest of the world with the exception of our Indigenous brothers and sisters that, and start, you know, trying to show that, that we're brave people in the same way that Cathy Freeman was brave or, mm. you know, the Rugby Sevens team is going to be brave as they beat the lights out of everybody. <laughs> the women, I mean. Um, so I do think there's some interesting things that we should start doing. Um, to ch- I really hate the idea of the arts community, you know, being beaten around and, you know, sort of becoming supine. It just doesn't I, become I, me. I don't think there's any chance that it's going to become That's super. Good. <laughs> and I think, in fact, I, I, I want to take up your point too, Nick, that um, I think that the that we're learning our power and that the, um, that the example that your community provides is one of uni- unity. And that yeah. is a very, very powerful force. You know, when you, when you share something that you all feel is important enough to come together about and you can set aside your minor differences with you know to for the purposes of the big story and the other thing of course is that we now have tools that we've never had before so using social media and um, um, online communication systems has made it so easy so for example we, for the day of action that was organised ahead of the election, two weeks ahead, we got that all together, we, not just us, but in partnership with others, um, got that together within uh, two or three days. And within a day, there were posters, banners being um, painted in people's studios and there, were, there was a meeting place, Malcolm Turnbull's office, and, <laughs> you know, hundreds of people turned up and had a demo and it only took a few hours' work. Yeah. It was fantastic. So we're learning very fast how to be potent in this environment. And it's politicised us. And, in fact, I, one of the interesting things that I have to um, keep thinking about is that I'm constantly asked by journalists whether I think that the reason that NAVA lost its funding was because we've been so vociferous about our concerns about what's been going on. And I thought to myself, you know, if that was the case, and I'm not going to say it was or it wasn't, but, you know, that was a big mistake because in us no longer being dependent on government funding, we don't have to be nice anymore. Mm. (laughs) Um... Michael, how does the, the state of arts in Australia compared to what's happening internationally? Um, I was very taken recently at the ISPA con- Congress in Melbourne. Um, wonderful director of um, a theatre company in Eastern Europe. And she said she was giving a story about her theatre company, which is a radical guerrilla theatre company. She said, in the West, you lose your funding in the east we lose our lives or we spend or we spend 
know, most of our lives in jail. And I guess it was a salutary reminder of how easy we get it here mm -hmm. and how we need to open up our heads to what is going on in the outside world. If there's one characteristic that you know, seems to have grown in um, the Australian psyche, it's the idea that you know, let's focus inward rather than outward. I always liked Australia when we focused outward. And I think it is still something that, you know, in terms of comparison, mm. we're, we're, we are still uh, too inwardly focused. And I think that's happened significantly uh, in the last 10 or so years. And I think it's time for us to, to get out of it because, you know, there's a, the world is a pretty tricky place. Um, you know, and you can see what's happening in... You know, America even at the moment, and you know it, some of the things focus too much. You know, I hate talking about arts funding anymore, because you know I look at the prospect of Donald Trump as a, a credible candidate of leading the Western world, and you know that makes that really causes me um, deep dark distress and you know sleepless nights. I think we're doing great things. We've shown we're we're good at lots of things. Mm. But you no, know, sort of, um, we're not out there um, really um, challenging the world on you know why certain things happen. You know why? You know I haven't seen a good play about you know sort of gay marriage yet, or I haven't seen you know a good play about you know sort of really the dynamics of Islamic Australia and you know and similarly in a whole lot of other areas. I think the work that say Lloyd Newsom, Australian export did in the UK with DV8, much more challenging in, in regard to Islam and racism and you know, those sorts of things. But they're not works that you know, have been created here over the course of the last 10 or 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, Nick, do you think small to medium organisations can um, work better with majors to improve that relationship? Yeah, I reckon majors can work better with us. Sorry. There's, I, and I, I have, like, there's always a, oh, we must resist an us and them kind of binary here. But also, oh, they've got so much more money. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we, can, we could work better. Um, unfortunately, no, fortunately, um, I think small to medium organisations, sized organisations, are probably more likely to work with communities that are more vulnerable or less connected or less wealthy for a bunch of different reasons. So um, for, us, for us to work better with majors, I, I don't know, it's, it's a murky territory in those kind of MO, memorandum of understanding spaces. Um, and I've seen a lot go sour really quickly because, um, for example, I work uh, in an organisation which is a priority organisation for partnerships for you know, organisations like this to come out and help us out. But there is a tension between <laughs> What are they getting from us? What are we getting from them? Um, and when that transac transaction comes up, I feel like sometimes we have less firepower to interrogate the merits of the transaction and make sure that we're getting a fair deal. And sometimes they come off better. And I don't think that is anyone individual. I don't think anyone's malicious or doing this intentionally. I just think that a better resourced organisation is mm. probably going to wind up getting a better deal because they know, they know how to do it. Um, there are some organisations that are starting to do some exciting things. I mean, Belvoir's announced its artist workshop for next year, which is trying to activate space. Um, there's no fees, but it's for um, kind of independent artists. So 
they're, they're starting to, I, I'm see, I feel like I'm starting to see doors open up or conversations starting to be had. Um, whether that turns into substantial change is, is something else. So I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, no, that was kind good. of. Thank you. Would anyone else like to add anything to that? Well, I think the big, no, I think, I guess I can say it. I think the big organisations have been extraordinarily slow in addressing the, the broader situation that you know, people now find themselves in. And I really think it behoves them to do something quickly because next time it comes around, you're quite likely to have a government that says, we like the small, young, innovative sector, the way KPMG said yesterday, we're only going to inter interview 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds for jobs. Now, I think... You know, the, the big sector needs to start you know, helping in a, a much more realistic and immediate way to address the fact that if you don't have a... I started working in the stables you know, when it was you know, the first Nimrod. And you know, from that point of view, I've worked... You know, I know what the theatre's about and I know what the performing arts are about by starting off having worked in little places. And if you don't establish that um, jumping off point for, for people, then you know, we'll all be doomed. Mm -hmm. Can I also just say one thing also, because this question's come up a couple of times and there's always a strange tension I experience during it because they might give me a job one day. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, but I, I need to acknowledge that and kind of breathe that out because I think a lot of younger artists have to deal with that. We're asked these questions and we're asked, like, you know, bite the hand that feeds you but know who to talk to. But, you know, be radical but be presenting works that are in line with the artistic vision. Um, so it, it, it's tough to be asked to come out and be critical of the majors for not doing enough when... Well, that, that's why I think it behoves old veterans to I do it rather than, than young people. <laughs> do it people. on our behalf. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, there is something... Uh, there, there are slight differences between art forms. Yeah. And mm. in the visual arts, of course, the majors are the state galleries and a few like the MCA here. Um, and I think what, one of the interesting things that's happening is that they, in a sense, are... Um, picking up the cue from the small to mediums and moving into the contemporary art scene because they can see that that's where the future is. You know that they that that respect for heritage and and conservation and so on is still there. But when people come to a gallery, they're just as interested, if not more interested, in what our culture now today is about as they are in looking at its antecedents. And so there is another tension now, which is the small to mediums feeling that not only are the majors taking all the resources, but they're taking their territory as well. Mm. So that's something that needs a bit of playing out and resolution. And the way I think that that could work is if there was a partnership. You know, instead of there being a competition, it should be a collaboration. Mm. That's a good point. Um, for Michael and Tamara, um, what's happening as a result of cuts to art education? Oh, gosh. <laughs> yes. Can I leave you I, I'm only new in the arts <laughs> education business. <laughs> I can tell you, I'm loath to always be talking about bad stories because I, I take your point, Michael, that we, it's, it's all comparative. You know, Australia's still a very safe and cosy place compared with most of the rest of the world. But when you see things getting worse, you have to say something about it. And for the visual arts, what's been happening around the country is the gradual contraction of art schools, the art schools particularly that are within the universities, 
um, have been diminished, taken over, combined with other things. Um, options are diminishing for people to have choice about what they do. And of course, the latest version of it is the little drama that we're seeing played out in Sydney where <laughs> it was a bit of a debacle, actually, and you're a brave man, um, <laughs> that, the, um, that the three Sydney art schools um, were... There was a sort of... Um, how would I describe it? A, a, a kind of... Um, I just can't find the word, but it was the, the appearance of something wonderful was supposed to be going on in the creation of a centre for excellence. And as one of the artists said at the public demonstration about this, you have to be very careful who um, claims the word excellence and for what purpose. And, and what was going on was the idea of the appearance of three art schools actually gaining benefit from collaborating with one another. The real story was that nobody wants to pay for those art schools and two um, institutions, well, one institution, Sydney University, was trying to get rid of Sydney College of the Arts and the, and the state government's trying to get rid of having to pay for the National Art School. So, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing the motives um, playing out for... Um, you know, the, the greed of a government wanting to make money out of the real estate that's being occupied by two of those art schools and the lack of valuing of what, again, once again, what the creative field can offer the world of academe. So, you know, we, we're seeing the problems of the Dawkins reforms of the 90s where the art schools were slurped up by the universities still being problematic, where the universities still haven't embraced the idea that there's more than one language, you know, that there's a visual intellectual language as well as, well as, a, as a verbal and oral intellectual language. And, and I guess to just add to it, you know, people still want to learn to paint, sculpt, draw all of those other things. Not everyone wants to be um, on their iPad or, or doing it in cyberspace or with robotics. And, and so it legitimately, you know, any great city should have a number of options in terms of an art school, in the same way that you would hope they have options in drama schools and television schools. You know, it's really important. And if you magnify it out to the rest of the country, then, you know, we have to have places that, you know, teach proper skills that, you know, will be the people who, you know, then lead us on the creative side of what we're doing. So the reason I took on the role I've just taken on is I believe there should be a national art school and that, you know, whoever wants to pay for it, then you know, we'll find a way through that and that it should be, you know... It's best rooted in a, a way of practice that you know, has been proved over a hundred years, and you know, it's you know, it's not the government who own all the real estate. My view is we own all the real estate, and you know, that's why governments need to be very careful if they you know, want to you know, do things about selling them off or you know, closing them down or merging them. And merging, it just doesn't... I, you know, to, except for football teams, when the AFL was trying to restructure 20 or 30 years ago, I don't think merging has ever been a very good thing you know, within the cultural sector. Mm. So you're ready to battle? <laughs> I'm ready to engage with uh, <laughs> my stakeholders. <laughs> um, uh, before 
before we invite some questions from our audience, are there any points that um, people would like to make before we move on? I'd, I'd just like to say that um, for us as First Peoples, we've been working really closely with um, some of the programs across the Australia Council, um, which are the, the Blackfella uh, Boot Camp, which is identifying market development leaders and, and catching up the rest of mainstream Australia in the, the cultural arts sector. We've been, uh, which has been really great. The, the First Nations Exchange, which has been happening now for about, you know, eight to ten years, um, which is really starting to bubble and um, take form in shape of um, collaborations and exchanges. Uh, and, and certainly um, the British Council's program for uh, the Accelerate to the uh, Creative Indigenous Leaders. There's 29 of us alumni now and we've and that's not including this year's intake, which will be announced next week, I think, in Melbourne. And, and you know, we've just had um, a, a few days down at Wollongong University um, as alumni and um, where we think this model of this program could fit in other First Nations like Tonga, Fiji, Taiwan. Well, was that a British government Indigenous British, leaders? British program? Council, yes. Oh, perhaps they shouldn't have colonised us. Um, <laughs> it would have been perhaps, an easier perhaps way. Perhaps Australia <laughs> should register on the decolonisation <laughs> list and then we could get more money. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there's they're some of the positive things that are happening in, in our... Perhaps uh, enough of us now into the crowd. <laughs> One thing about only because sometimes you get put in these panels and it's like PAC lost funding, Nava lost funding, Mughalan got funding. funding. We're so happy that Mughalan got funded. Yeah. It's a great org and it's really important they're not for a second because it feels sometimes like they want to divide and conquer us. And yes. We're not going to do this winners or losers no. stuff. Like We're it, still collaborating with PAC. Exactly. And we actually are collaborating on a project. So <laughs> Mughalan was a great win and yeah, it's, it's just great to be here. Oh, and, and PAC helped um, our young emerging artists come through the Step Up program and work with us on Gathering Ground and, you know. I, I think there's one interesting point that comes out of what you both just said. I think in the past we have tended to look too much in our individual art form boxes. I think one of the interesting things that's come out of both the you know, terrific work that Tamara has done um, and a whole lot of the trauma and stress of the last year or so has been that people are now looking across the areas. You know, that the visual arts wouldn't talk to the performing arts, who wouldn't talk to dance, who wouldn't talk to classical music or literature. I think that has you know, finally been broken and I think that probably augurs well for you know, where things are going to go and the sort of you know, cross-disciplinary work that people are going to be doing and, you know, and the level of discourse and exchange that takes place. Well, we come from that space of multidisciplinary artists, so we're always talking to each other. I don't know if you can see that water out there, but we can tell you a yarn about that water, we can sing that water, we can dance that water. Now we can do a theatre piece about the water, we can do an <laughs> installation art piece about the water, <laughs> photographs. So, yeah, we're really in tune with that, and that's, I think that's our strength. Thank you. I think we'll hand the microphone over to you guys now. I forgot to check. Do we, do we invite our audience members up to the, the microphones? Yes. Yep, excellent. Um, does anyone have a question? Perhaps raise your hand and then um, you can come up and, and talk into the microphone. You've spoken so thoroughly. <laughs> 
come on. <laughs> well, I'm sure there must be people yeah, who have this experience. Please come yes. up here. You're a brave man. <laughs> Hi, my name is Charles Littrell. I am. Um, my wife and I do a lot of support for theatre in Sydney, but I would make two observations here. One is you're sitting in the Sydney Opera House, which was given to the arts community by the people of Australia. Not true. <laughs> okay, they, they had true. a paid for by the people by of, the lottery of the cities by the lottery. Yes. There's a vast network of capital goods have been invested in arts, museums, theatres, whatever. You haven't said a word about that. You haven't said a word about your tax-exempt status. You haven't said a word about your charitable deduction status. You haven't said really that much about education other than to bemoan cuts in funding. There's a huge amount of public money that goes into arts before you get the first damn dollar of Arts Council. You should be more grateful. Oh, we should take that as a comment. Yes, that's a comment. Yeah. Second point, I do observe the artist, artistic community now is working together. You know, you're sharing, and people used to so hoard their subscriber list and not talk to each other, it gets better. But I would say to you, do you wonder sometimes in a world where every week the top selling or the top viewing TV show has about a million and a half viewers. All the professional theaters in Australia in a year sell a million and a half tickets. There's a big cultural entertainment, not-for-profit sector that's doing pretty well. Have you backed yourself into the corner of saying, we want subsidy for the unpopular niche art? And should you reach out a bit more to the middle class? Right? We are the people who are paying for this, but you're not talking to us very much. Who would like to respond to that? Well, I want, to, I want to respond first to that because, um, yeah, we haven't sat around and waited for a handout. We've um, worked for the last 10 years, project to project, without any funding. We're looking at how, uh, in the next four years of recurrent funding, first time ever, that we don't stay in that model. How do we sustain ourselves as, as a cultural enterprise? How we make money... Um, and I'm, this is going to be sound bad for you blackfellas out there listening on TV, but how we make money and, and value our cultural knowledge because it's our cultural knowledge combined with the world's first people's cultural knowledge that are going to save the world. Mm. I might like to answer a bit of what you've said um, because I think that the, the, certainly there's an investment through education in all fields of enterprise, not just the arts. I mean, every field of enterprise starts through people being educated and then implementing their knowledge. So the arts is not in any way different from anything else, science or technology or finance or anything. But, but what I think is important is that the reason that, it, that government funding, and we have been preoccupied with it, and uh, I, you know, there's a whole wealth of other things to talk about, 
um, but we had our marching orders for this topic. Um, but I think we have to understand that the money, that the very tiny amount of money that the government gives, gives to the arts is an investment in innovation. So yes, those things that start out in the Belvoir Street or the Pact or the, you know, any of those, or Mooglin or any of those other entities or the small to mediums or the artist-run spaces that we uh, support, eventually, um, generate 50, a $50 billion industry. And the whole community benefits from that. So that very small investment that's made by government is actually what generates the content and the form of what then flows out a year or 10 years or 50 years later. But that innovation investment is a very powerful investment because it's, the, it's, it's starting off the work that eventually will create its audiences and will find its consumers and its, um, you know, its popular place. But it has to start somewhere. And new ideas are always tricky, you know, in any field, whether it's science and technology or, or the arts. It has to start somewhere. So well, I would say uh, it's an, the, there's a very powerful argument for investing in innovation. Um, I'm just taking... Taking a risk. I don't think um, we need to be more grateful. I would take great exception to what you've said. Um, you know, that if the government opts to spend $50 billion on 12 submarines <laughs> against the piffling investment that government makes in the arts across all of the sectors of society, then, no, I think... You know, if the people vote for that government to do that, then that's fine. But you no, know, I've been a taxpayer like everyone else in this room and most of the people in the country. And from that point of view, we deserve the, um, you know, to be supported, whether it be through our hospitals, our education or the arts. I think, you know, from your country, you know, they, you know, you have been the great apostles of it. The fact you only, you know, commit money to support the arts on the basis of getting tax deductions. So, you know, from our point of view, no, I think we should justly stand up for what's been done to support the arts. I don't begrudge. No, I ran this opera house. No, clearly I recognise how it was paid for. It was an act of vision and courage by a government <coughs> that was then paid, by, paid for by the people of this place. And, no, from that point of view, that is um, what good societies and even great societies are about. I, actually, there's another point that I'd like to make too, um, and again, um, picking up on your question, because I think what goes unrecognised is the enormous contribution that's made by creative people um, themselves. They're not funded. They do it because they have a commitment to the work, and I'm not in any way defending that because I, don't, I think artists should be being paid. But as things currently stand, the biggest investment in arts and culture is made by artists. Mm. They provide that mostly without being paid. You know, I did a calculation once about the likelihood of people getting a, an art, a, a grant from the Australia Council. And, I, but, and according to the figures, I worked out that each artist could expect to get one grant from the Australia Council every 100 years. <laughs> Can I just... Yeah, I, I just want to talk about the niche and unpopular comment, because I think I'm niche and unpopular. I reckon that's my strike zone right there. I think you nailed it. Um, and I'm probably not clever enough to deal with all of your argument, but, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's a fair point to make. 
Um, I, I could make an economic argument saying that some of that niche and unpopular stuff is actually contributing towards that middle-class mainstream awesome blockbuster stuff and that it wouldn't exist without the niche and unpopular stuff. I could also make the case around health outcomes and social cohesion, so saying actually in a time of increased radicalisation with young people, we need ways of connecting with communities and helping them to express themselves. Um, health outcomes in hospitals, you know, I could make that, but I also don't really want to go into that because I think that there's a case to be made art for art's sake. It's a harder case to be made, but I think it's a more important one to be made. Mm. Um, and I actually think that with enough lobbying and enough work, I can rally enough people in the country to get behind that case and that should give us the political will that means I don't, I don't, have, to, um, I don't have to give the economic and the health outcomes anymore because art's, art's enough, I think. Thank you. <laughs> Were there any other burning questions from the floor? No? You've... One? Oh, no, oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, can everyone please join me in thanking our guests today, Nick Atkins, Lily Shearer, Tamara Winnikoff and Michael Lynch. Thanks very much to you guys for, for coming here on a, a bit of a, a cold and wet evening, but it's lovely and warm here in the Opera House. Um, the next Culture Club event is a conversation with John Cleese on Monday the 15th of August, so please come along to that one if it takes your fancy, or you can check out the full list of events uh, on the Culture Club website. So thanks again. <laughs>